Welcome to Video Store. I am Sam Mulberry, and we are here this week to talk about the 1993 film Fearless. So let's step into Baird Fisher's Video Store to have a little conversation. Baird, how you doing? I'm doing great, Sam. Barrett, this was, um, as we talked about last week, this is a film that I had never seen before. I think, so I'll start with my history with this film because it's very short. Um, I, I Clearly I'd heard of this movie. I knew it had something to do with a plane crash and I knew Rosie Perez was in it and I maybe knew Jeff Bridges was in it, but that's about as far as as um, as I can go in terms of my history with this film. So maybe let's let's ask you that. What is your history um, with this film? Um, and and then we'll get into uh, well then we'll get into why you selected it. But but I'm just curious your history watching this film. Is this something you saw when it came out? Yeah, you know I, that's a good question. I it's another one of those films that I use in one of my courses. Um, I think I mentioned that last week as I had a student report that it was a trigger. I should have given her a trigger warning because of the plane crash. Um, I don't remember, honestly, if I found it because of the class or if I had seen it. I don't think I saw it when it came out, but um, I've always been a Peter Weir film a fa a fan. So I certainly would have been interested in it because it was a Peter Weir film. Um, but I'm pretty sure I probably saw it on video first sometime in the mid-90s. So my first impression watching this was, um, and I, I mean, I mean this as a as a compliment. It was like as I as I sort of watched the people that were in it, like I looked at like as the cast people started to appear, and uh, and and with Peter Weir, I realized like, oh, I'm in like competent hands. Um, right. was, was my you know uh, going through the the cast? I mean, you have Jeff Bridges, who's won an Oscar, been nominated seven times. Rosie Perez is nominated for this movie. Tom Hulse has been nominated for an Oscar. You have a very young Benicio del Toro. I did a double take when he appeared. I'm like, I think yeah. that's Benicio del Toro. <laughs> and what's funny is I'm so used to him playing characters where he's doing such a. a thick accent or such like an affected way of talking like mm. in the usual suspects or something where he's kind of hard to understand mm. and I, i've never heard i've never heard his him play uh, a character who didn't really have much of an accent at all it was really interesting mm -hmm. um and this and this is clearly the the youngest i've ever seen him in a movie so that was interesting um this is our i think our third movie with john Turturro in it so i didn't expect him and all of a sudden he shows up uh on the plane um and as I was going through this, I'm shocked that he's never been nominated for an Oscar, John Turturro. That's really amazing to Isn't me. Isn't it? I was so because I, I was going through the list. I'm like, man, all these people have been nominated, and I realized yeah. he never has, and he has tied himself to some really great filmmakers. I oh. mean, he's been in a ton of Spike Lee movies, a ton of um, Coen Brothers movies, uh, but uh, but never nominated. So that's that's now one of the things I think we need to do is get John Turturro at least nominated for an Oscar at some how, point. How he could not have been nominated for Barton Fink, I can't understand. Yeah, um, yeah. I just I just assumed I just I assumed that he had been nominated for that or for Quiz Show or something. Sure. You know, he got a Golden Globe nomination for Quiz Show, but that's his only, maybe his only movie even Golden Globe nomination. But you know, Bridges didn't get nominated for this film either. Which, right. Which astonishes me. It's one of his best performances. So. And then, and then, um, Peter Weir is somebody who, if you had said his name, uh, if you had said his name a couple years ago, I would say I probably heard it, but didn't know who it was. Um, but I've, when I look at his filmography, I realize, wow, this is actually somebody who's made quite a few movies that I've seen and is is a, a pretty interesting director. So he's made, um, I think he's made fourteen feature films. Um, so he's not 
constantly putting out movies. He's not somebody who every year there's a, a Peter Weir film. Um, he's been nominated for six Oscars, four of them for directing. Uh, again, not for this film, but this this film falls right in the middle of of his four nominations. So in 1985, the movie Witness, 1989, Dead Poets Society, 98, The Truman Show, and 2003, Master and Commander. And that's his last, that's his last film. Um, well, Peter, he, did, he did do one in 2010, um, uh, Sam, that uh, kind of didn't get a lot of attention. Uh -huh. um, but, um, you know, if you'd asked me about my history with Weir, um, I can tell you I have very, very clear um, recollection of seeing Witness. I can tell you what theater I saw it in and when, and when I saw it. I have a very clear recollection of seeing Dead Poets Society, uh, The Truman Show. But I can go even farther back with Weir. When I was in college and just beginning to kind of uh, become interested in film, I had a, um, a friend who was a very uh, real cinephile. And he introduced me to what at that time was called the Australian New Wave uh, movement of film in the 70s, kind of a, uh, an Australian version of the French New Wave from the 50s and 60s. So Weir was one of those people who was uh, one of the leading directors in that, in that new wave. Um, and at the time, I saw a couple of his earlier films, The Last Wave, which is a really, really interesting film that was shown down at the Trilon Cinema last year. Uh, and, and his first significant film, Picnic at Hanging Rock, uh, which is a, a really interesting mystery based on an actual historical incident. Um, and then he followed those up with Gallipoli uh, in 81. And then his biggest film was international production with um, Mel Gibson and Linda Hunt called The Year of Living Dangerously. Uh, in 1983, and then he moved into uh, in, in, into Hollywood. So he he was definitely the most successful of the directors in that Australian new wave. But they include other people like Bruce Beresford, uh, who's I think his best Australian film is Breaker Morant. Uh, but then when he moved to Hollywood, he made Tender Mercies, which is a really fine. Oh, really? Film. Okay, I've seen that. And then, yeah. and then Driving Miss Daisy. Um, he also made that. And then the other, the other kind of leading person in the, in that new wave was Fred Chapese. Uh, he made a really good, a really good film called The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, uh, from 1978, which kind of highlights the Aboriginal experience in Australia. Uh, I think his career is less impressive since he moved to Hollywood. He did Mr. Baseball, um, Six Degrees of Separation, the, the sequel to A Fish Called Wanda, um, uh, Fierce Creatures. And then the other one who stayed mostly in Australia, but done some, some in Hollywood is Gillian Armstrong. Um, her big Australian film was My Brilliant Career. Uh, but then in Hollywood, she made a film, which I've never seen with uh, Mel Gibson called Mrs. Soffel. Uh, but she also did the 94 version of uh, Little Women. With oh, okay. Wider. So there's this, I mean, it's really interesting what happens where, you know, they make their name in Australia, but then they kind of come to Hollywood. And so, uh, as I said, Weir has been kind of the, um, uh, certainly the brightest light among among those. So if you think about him as a filmmaker, are there, because uh, I've seen um, a number of a number of his films, is there anything that uh, stands out to you as a filmmaker, particularly either in terms of visual things he does, storytelling things he does? Uh, that's an interesting question. I, 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 I don't know that I have a good uh, handle on what I think may, particularly makes a weird film visually interesting. I think what makes a weird film interesting to me is he, he always finds ways to engage um, in uh, stories that I think make uh, the stories that really kind of prompt you to think a lot, which is what I would say is interesting about Fearless. Um, 
you know, but uh, and he, and I think he makes a, he makes good use of uh, kind of different kind of very specific settings. You know, Witness is uh, so deeply embedded in Amish territory, for example, or a film like The Truman Show. You know, creating the whole world in which uh, the Jim Carrey uh, character lives. Um, I think there's some, I think there are things even about Fearless that are kind of very specific to to, to California. So I think he's he, I think he's a director that has a very strong sense of of place. Um, I also think he has a little bit of a little bit of a sentimental streak that kind of irritates me. Um, uh, Dead Poet Society would be an example. I, I like certain aspects of that film, and and I would also say that he works really well in a couple of those films, like Dead Poet Society and Witness. He works re really well with young actors um, as, as well. So you said that you you use this in class. So what what class were you were you watching this film with students in? Oh, uh, this would have been another one of my uh, spiritual autobiography classes. Okay. Um, so yeah, I, I I used the when I was teaching in the interim format, and you had three hours. Uh, we could watch a film uh, in its entirety and then have a conversation about it. So this this is a film that obviously raises very interesting spiritual, psychological, emotional issues. So it seemed kind of a Kind of a natural, especially since it's full of Christian iconography. Um, uh, to, so to me, it was a really good film to talk about in that in that context. So, what are some? What and if it, I realize it's probably been a while since you've taught this film, but like, what were some of the things that um, that you and students talked about? Um, I mean, what were what were what were? I, I'm a part ask these questions because since this is a was a first viewing for me, I got to tell you, this is what I'm still kind of processing in terms of like, I feel incomplete about my feelings of, about this. So I'm sort of curious as you had discussions, you know, did this, did this film teach well? Did it rate, did it create good discussions? Yeah, I, th I think, I think that it did. You know, one, one of the things that you're doing when you're teaching film is you're always uh, in most cases, you're always kind of doing two different things. You're sort of, you have um, themes or ideas or issues that you want to tease out of the film but you're also are almost always teaching people how to read a film. And so, so a lot of it is, is, is helping people to uh, pay attention to uh, the details, as I said, the iconography of the film that they might not otherwise uh, pay attention to. Of course, sometimes when you teach at a Christian institution like Bethel, sometimes you have to be careful when you start talking about um, iconography or, or Christ figures, because sometimes people think that the way to re you read literature or film as a Christian is always to find the hidden Christ a little bit like a Flannery O'Connor story, um, but but this is a, this is a film where it's quite deliberate. Um, the way, various ways in which Weir has set up um, a whole series of images and references that um, associate uh, Jeff Bridges' character with with Christ um, in ways that are obviously quite you know quite quite deliberate. So you don't have to worry that you're kind of reading into it. So. Um, so, so you have just visual images, right? When he's um, after the plane crash, when he's in the hotel room and takes the shower, uh, and then he looks, he's got that wound in his side, uh, which then, you know, in case you don't get it later on in the film, when he- You and, see the exact thing on the crucifix, yeah. yeah. yeah exa exactly, um, you know, he's got the sheet wrapped around himself, almost like a, like a, like a burial shroud. You have the very otherwise inexplicable scene of him, um, resting by the side of the car and spitting in, 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 in the mud and making the clay uh, in the mud in the same way that Jesus did when he healed uh, the blind man. But also I think what's going on in that scene, which evidently was shot on location in Australia, 
Uh, I think what's going on in that scene is I think it's one of the references to the temptations uh, of, of the devil because, you know, the devil leads Jesus out in the wilderness after Jesus fasts for 40 days in the wilderness, you know, the devil tempts him. Uh, and then you get the other temptations of the devil later on in the film when he's in the, um, the lawyer's office and he's being tempted with worldly riches. Uh, and then he goes out on the roof uh, like Jesus on, on, on the on, on, at the pinnacle of the temple. So uh, and, th and then you get this idea that he um, he says, I don't want to lie anymore. Uh, and Laura complains about his truth telling, uh, but he, he can't help but but tell truth. Um, and then, of course, there's the the whole notion of him. And I realize this is, you know, getting your theological wires crossed a little bit. But he's obviously the good Samaritan. Mm -hmm. um, and you have the boy saying, you know, I feel safe with him. And the way that he leads the people out of the plane, they hear his voice. And they follow his voice in the same way that the good sheep, that the sheep followed the good shepherd. Um, so and, and then there's his miraculous walk through traffic, right, um, as though he's somehow, um, you know, indestructible. And, of course, obviously a really key part of the film, which is almost a magical realist element, is the strawberries. Um, the forbidden fruit. So, you know, reference to a reference to the fall. Um, and so he's able, because of course, Jesus was sinless, he's able to eat the strawberries without any ill effect. And he does that twice before the end of the film. So, you know, so that's one thing I would, I would say in, in, in helping people unpack the film is, is look, look for those sorts of patterns, which are, which are, which are quite, are quite clear. At the same time, he's not really created, um, you know, while Weir is running those parallels at the same time, He's obviously not an ideal character. He's not. He's, he he obviously doesn't have a handle on things. He, in fact, as he says, he's trying to figure things out. He really doesn't quite understand what's going on. So it's almost as though Weir has kind of two different narratives going at going at the same time. Well, I actually found that really interesting because as I was reading different reviews from the time um, from 1993, they were this was so unbelievably mixed critically. Like there were people, uh, uh, Ebert really liked it, gave mm. it three stars, um, really liked it. Uh, uh, I was looking in the LA times, uh, Kenneth Turan just kept talking about how after the plane crash, he thought that, uh, the Jeff Bridges character was like supposed to be all these things that you're talking about, but he's like, I actually think he's a jerk. And like, and like, so the whole review yeah. is like, it doesn't work because he's, he, he thinks that that character is actually like, pretty awful mm. yeah no I, I um yeah i actually i actually revi revisited that review and, th and thought about that and so i, I guess yeah my response to that that's what i meant by saying that i think there's kind of two different narratives going on sam you know i think that we're setting up these parallels because to a certain degree that's in um max's head um you know and when he comes back to the house laura embraces him and she says it's a miracle he's perfect um, you know, and, and, and he's trying to figure out, he's trying to figure out what his identity is. So it's, it's not as though he is, um, he's not endowed with, with super powers. He's not, not endowed with any kind of particular wisdom. It's more that he's, he's a person, I mean, in a sense, he's in a state of, um, uh, he, he's suffering from, uh, from, from, uh, you know, PTSD in a sense, but he's processing it differently than other people do. So I don't know. I, you know, I, I tend to be forgiving of filmmakers and our artists and their intentions. And so I, that's why I tend to think, no, I'm, I think he'd be a pretty boring character if he actually came back as some kind of perfect re, reimagination of Jesus. I think it makes much more sense that he is a bundle of, of contradictions. Yeah. And I also, I, I find it, you know, interesting too, like he, 
um, and, and how when he gets back to his his family, like how interested he is, how he ends up finding the this sort of other family too, and it's but right. it, but it doesn't necessarily there. There's this this kind of um, understandable sort of jealousy from his wife and his son, you know, and, and it, it it sort of reminds me of um, you know, this idea that like every time I think. I think uh, this may be a, a misunderstanding of uh, T.S. Eliot's uh, The Cocktail Party. Um, <laughs> but this idea, like every time we leave, like we're every time we leave someone and come back, we're changed. And like, we're not always ready to accept the fact that the person has has changed. So like they sort of want to say, like, well, can we like your sort of your perfect, your un your your undamaged. So let's just go back. Right. And he's sort of like, well, I, I can't go back. I can't yeah. I can't be what I was. And there's this sort of wrestling that and then you have this mirroring where there is this other person who's willing to be the son to the good Samaritan, almost, you know, too willing in this other child. And then Rosie Perez as a uh as as another I mean, and it's, I was going to say another wife figure. And it's kind of that, but kind of not that. I mean, that's another thing that um people praise this movie for is this idea that they he creates this relationship with Carla that is a relationship about love. I mean he said I think he says I, I deeply love her or something. Yeah. He says yeah. it's like but it's it's not a romantic relationship, even though it sort of walks up to a line where you're sort of expecting that. And there's a few moments where it crosses that line, but it yeah. doesn't really cross that line. And I found that really, really interesting as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, at one point he does. Obviously, he does kiss her, and they're and they're they're obviously toying with whether or not this is going to become something else. But they both pull back from it, uh, and obviously Carla pulls back from it to, say, to help save the marriage, mm -hmm. uh, because even, even though she's broken up with uh, with her husband, she still she still wants Jeff Bridges to get back, uh, Max to get back with Laura. So, uh, what do you make of the? So the the movie starts, and I, I love just in terms of thinking about. Um, connections to other things we've talked about on this podcast. This movie is another movie where we have dead people walking out of a cornfield, right? People who have passed through death. Yes. So when I saw that, I thought, oh man, I've seen this, you know? Um, but then before he goes home, he revisits people from his past, from his childhood, or, or I don't, I couldn't tell if that was just like a high school friend or a former girlfriend or what that, that was. And that, I mean, that's where we get introduced to the strawberry thing. Yeah. What else is the function of that? Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a it's a college friend, evidently. Okay. Um, well, I I think I think I think Sam he's still trying to figure out whether he's alive. Okay. Um, you know, I mean, he because because he he said I thought I was dead, um, and I think that going to see her in a way is um, you know so she opens the door and recognizes him right away. You know, Max Klein, what's it been twenty years? Um, I think that's. I, th I think that's a kind of affirmation for him that he really actually is is alive. Um, at least that that's 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 the way I I, I interpret that. Um, okay. and, and, and yet at the same time, okay, so I'll I'll connect it to Groundhog Day. Um, at the same time, he's trying to figure out what are the rules now. So he sees her, but now he's going to eat strawberries. So it's 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 interesting to me that he. I, I think I think the strawberries are part of trying to figure out too. You know, am I? If I am alive, then maybe I'm indestructible. Um, and so then, you know, so then he has the bowl of strawberries and sure enough, he doesn't have an allergic reaction. Uh, the other big, big thing that as I'm reading reviews um, and this, obviously the, the Oscars 
the the academy backed this up as well was people wrote about sort of what a revelation um rosie perez was uh they kept talking about because this was maybe her third or fourth film by this point so her first film was do the right thing which we watched last week um and just how amazing um amazing they they thought it, they thought she was and then really i just think about that that relationship you know two people who are dealing very differently with this um with this plane crash yeah. right and then and that creates i think some of the the really interesting dialogue in the film because sometimes max is unable to communicate with people but with someone like her i feel like all like that communication is very is very deep because you know as he says to his wife you know you can't understand what kind of, i don't know the exact words but what i've been through or what happened sure. and like uh carla ken right so can you talk maybe a little bit about that the the relationship between uh between carla and max well yeah i i think that what's i think what's interesting about their relationship is um to to me they're they're the focus of the film's exploration of, of the quarrel with god i mean the, the film you know is certainly implicitly about that problem uh well it's about the issue of death and the problem of evil right and so you discover that you know jeff bridges has an ongoing quarrel with god um that you know god killed my daddy that that's what that's what he he decides and i think he's only discovering through the interaction with carla that that's still an issue for him it doesn't really come up until until he's asked about it um and so he he takes the position that people don't actually believe in anything he says people choose not to believe in nothing. Uh, and so part of his struggle is the, is the struggle with meaninglessness. You know, if, if he survived, what's the point of the survival? If he survived and he doesn't think there's a God, what's, uh, is it simply random? So, you know, at one point when he explains this to her, she says, so what are you telling me? There's no God, but you're a God, uh, which is another Groundhog Day uh, reference as well. Um, Carla, interestingly enough, you know, as she tries to process what's happening, she says uh, that uh, as they're beneath the, beneath the statue of Jesus, she says, he hurt me forever, but I still believe in him. So, so that's kind of the, that's kind of the quarrel that the two of them are, are having. I think that's, you know, that, that, that they're ultimately, ultimately processing what's happened from very different kind of theological places but they're both kind of stuck. And, and the central thing to me is that when he gets through kind of giving her his um, nihilistic philosophy, um, she, looks at him and she, she looks at him and she says, well, then there's no reason to love. And I think that's, I think that's really what the film is kind of getting at. Like, you know, how do you, how do you love? What kind of... Um, philosophical, spiritual, psychological, emotional framework you need for love. And so for her, it's not really the quarrel with God, because she does, she, but it, it, it's with herself. It's being able to love herself, it's being able to forgive herself for what happened to Bubble. So Max is able to help her with that through the car crash, when she realizes that she couldn't have held on to him, even if she had, even if she had tried. Um, she helps Max uh, because he he can't go he can't go the spiritual path even though at the moment of the crash he echoes the hail mary right be with us be with us now and in our moment of death mm -hmm. uh, so he, he does say that but what what he needs is he needs to regain uh, marital secular romantic love with Laura uh, and of course you know after he takes the strawberry he's his, uh, he says to her save me um, and so he needs he needs to regain that human connection. 
uh, Carla maybe needs to regain her divine her divine connection. So that's that's how I think they kind of help each other uh, uh, do that. Yeah, I really loved that. That I guess it would have been that that sort of the last evening with Max and Carla, where they go to the mall and they go shop, they go Christmas shopping for his father and for her son, um, and. Uh, I don't know. I, I found that I was very moved by that, and then that then spills into the the scene with the with the, the big toolbox and the and the car crash, um, which is something uh, I'm sure forty years from now, if I forget everything else about this film, I will remember that. I will remember that that toolbox flying through the front of the um, flying through the front of the car, and just like the the idea of like, in a sense, I. I so much well, we use the word love like, like 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 he has so much love for this person and so much desire and we've all had that situation where you're trying to convince someone that they need to forgive themselves yes. for something like and and so the links that that um and the risks he's willing to take to show her that and just how that scene goes to I don't know when, when there's that impact and you see the you see the toolbox fly through the front of the the windshield and hit and and it's like I feel like I had a like I had a revelation there too of like oh yeah she couldn't have like I didn't believe him that she couldn't have held on you know I think because as a parent you have this sense of like well no I could I could and then you know there's the yeah and then that also makes you think about like well made me think about well what actually happened to her son if if that's what happened to the tool like 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 what mm. must she be going through you know like right. like that was not the first time she had that experience. Um, right. And that and that is my favorite scene of the film. When I think of that film, I think of that. I think of the tracking shot of the car and uh, and the U two uh, song underneath, which just seems like the perfect song for that particular for that particular moment. Which is something else, of course. You know, we we should think about in the way that uh, Weir uses music in, in in the film, especially the final sequence when we actually see uh, we see the kind of get the whole story of how of the of, of how the crash occurs and. Um, and how he he leads them um, out of the plane, and it's uh, you know the, the soundtrack is Gresky's uh, Symphony Number no. Three, uh, which is called the Symphony of, of Sorrowful Songs, uh, and it's a it's a symphony in three movements. And um, it's interesting. I saw two different accounts of which movement is being played. Um, mm -hmm. The Wikipedia article tells you it's the first movement, which is uh, the Song of Mary lamenting over Jesus. Uh, but I actually am going to trust a scholarly source. Um, there's a, a nice, uh, a really nice book that I would recommend to people who are interested in exploring spiritual themes in the movies called Finding God in the Movies by uh, Robert Johnston and um, a co-author, I forget her first name, Barsati. Anyway, they say it's the third, they say it's the third movement, uh, which I'm going to tend to believe them. And the third movement is based on a Polish mother's folk song lamenting the death of her child who, quote, lies in his grave, and I do not know where, though I keep keep asking people everywhere. Um, so I think that's probably what's, to me, that's, so the music is really, really important in, in that in that, in that that scene, even though he doesn't have any of that vocalization, that's what it's, that's what it's evoking. Um, and then when you, when you see um, uh, Max's wife, like go through his his sketchbook or his oh, yeah, yeah I mean can you talk because so there's there's also this like visual art element and this repeating of the I mean he was looking out the the plane window and seeing the light there's all these moments when he's sort of staring at the sun or 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 this this bright light is coming through and then that obviously is part of this as well yeah there's a couple of elements one is there's a um, 
there's a, the, the painting, which is attributed to Bosch. Most people are pretty sure it's Bosch, but they don't know exactly. It's, it's part of a triptych uh, with, with, heaven, with, he, with uh, hell, purgatory, and, and, and heaven. So the, the picture he's looking at is the one that's usually called the uh, uh, Ascent into the Imperium. And Pyrian. Um, and then the the comment on the bottom appears to be, I wasn't able to find any source for it other than the film itself. When I kept doing a search, it kept coming back to it. Uh, and I so evidently it's something that Max himself has written. Uh, the soul comes to the end of its long journey and naked and alone draws near to the divine. So again, you have Max trying to make sense of uh, you know, he sees the light, and of course, another place where he sees the light is when he walks through the traffic. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, there's a street. There's a street person on the other side with a can, and the light's glinting off it, and that's that's kind of what calls Max to walk towards the light. So at the end, in that kind of classic story, you know, people being drawn towards the light, but they come back. You know, he's going towards the light, and Laura is calling for him to come back, and he and he comes back. So I think he, you know. So the the Bosch painting is kind of one more way of. Uh, trying to make sense of his uh, of his experience so why why in your mind does does like the the strawberry affect him at the end then where it where they hadn't before like like what 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 has changed in him and maybe you've talked a little bit about this but that was one of the things that was you know clearly like a a, a meaningful thing that I was Think about how how I would unpack that. So so I'm sort of curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I, I think there's a I think there's a couple of ways to to look at it. Um, one, I'm going to speak uh, from a position of no knowledge whatsoever, and I'm going to speculate wildly and and very irresponsibly. I have no idea if it's possible that as a physiological after effect of trauma, one's uh, immune system can actually respond differently to stimuli than it normally does. So that's one potential but probably crazy idea that somehow he's temporarily non-allergic to strawberries because of the trauma or the shock he's been through. That's one possibility. Se second possibility, actually I have three. Second possibility is that he has such a strong belief in his, um, uh, in his change condition, uh, such uncertainty about whether he's alive or dead or whatever, that, that somehow there's a mind over matter. Uh, and somehow his mind is able to make sure that he doesn't respond to strawberries the way he normally does. Uh, the third element is what I alluded to earlier, which is a kind of a kind of magical realism about the film, that the film is simply allowing uh, Max's projection of reality to kind of be reality um, for a while. But I, I, I do like the idea that there's something about his attitude, his detachment from himself, because that's what he has moved away from. When he takes the strawberry the third time, I think that he does it because he wants something to happen in order that Laura can save him. Um, so that's to, to me that that the, the, the strawberry, as he says, is for it's forbidden fruit. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think when he embraces it as forbidden fruit again, accepting the fact that he is immortal, um, that's his return. That's his return to reality. So uh, one thing I found interesting in, in researching this film is if, it, I, and again, I will say if Wikipedia is to be believed, and I presume it is on this, um, this was a commercially very unsuccessful film. Yeah, this cost and, about $20 million to make and made $7 million at the box office. Yeah, and it, you know, I, I, I read a contemporary review from the Washington Post, and I can't remember the reviewer's name, but he went out on this limb and said, this is going to be a huge hit. And I, 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 I hope he didn't have an office pool on that. <laughs> 
well, it's a it's a hard it's a hard film to market, um, Sam. I mean, I I mean, you know, on the one hand, you could say, well, look at the cast. You know, Jeff Bridges, he had, he was a big enough name by ninety one by ninety three. Isabella Rossellini, Rosie Perez, Peter Weir. You know, he had just done um, Truman Show, Dead Poet Society. I mean, he was a big name, but you know, it's it's hard. I don't know, and it's got a great title, Fearless, that's a great title. Um, but you know, how, how certain movies make it and how certain movies don't, it, it's, it's really kind of, a, kind of a mystery. As you said, there were sort of mixed reviews. Um, that doesn't always make a difference, as we know. As you look at Rotten Tomatoes, you will often see an amazing gap between what critics and, and, and audiences are saying about films. But I don't know. I think um, you know. Maybe it's maybe it's hard to market a plane crash. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, it, it, and it's a, it's it's a plane crash and a uh, spiritual journey that I, I and I will say it has to be unpacked a little bit. I mean, it you know, uh, like I said at the beginning, this is a movie that it's sort of in the incomplete column for me. And actually, this conversation has been helpful to think about some different things in there. This is a movie I'll probably have to go watch again to kind of keep thinking through um a little bit so so i mean I, it doesn't surprise me um but i just i was i was surprised by how big that gap was um, what i what i didn't do and what would be interesting to do is i i didn't and i'm glad you didn't ask me I, I i didn't go back to see well what was released at about the same time see i don't i don't remember i think it was a june release but i don't remember so but but you know as you know the time in october october release. october release. Okay, well you know october's um usually that's a pretty yeah, October's an odd slot sometimes. You yeah. never you know it's not it's not the summer blockbuster, it's not the Christmas. Um the dogs usually come out in January, February, and March. Um, although interesting enough, Wes Anderson likes to release his films then typically. Um yeah, so so it probably didn't have a lot of competition. Hard to say. So yeah. Yeah. Uh could a movie like or could or would a movie like this get made in 2020? <laughs> Uh, actually, yeah, I think it, I th yeah, I think it would. You know, one of the things I was going to say about the film is that um, it, it it's also unpredictable when audiences will, in fact, embrace movies that are a little more problematic. Um, and I think there's been a little bit more of a more of a move um, in that direction with with movie making. On the other hand, uh, people have so many options to choose from; it's really hard to know what's going to make it or not make it these days. So uh, before we uh, before we move on, are there other things that you want to talk about with this film? Yeah, I just I, I wanted to say when I was talking earlier about music, um, I, I I came I I uncovered a really interesting statement by um, Weir about his relationship with music because I do think music has a lot uh, says a lot in this film, and Weir said at one point, storytelling is my trade, my craft. But music is my inspiration and my goal, my metaphor to affect people like music. The images should float over you like music, and the experience should be beyond words. And I think, and I actually think it's interesting that both with music and then with a lot of the visual images that Max has created, I think it's interesting that that Weir identifies um, one of the goals of the film to operate in a way which is beyond words. Because one of the things that makes film so interesting to me is the way that it does marry different media. You know, is, is film a visual medium? Or is it a or is it a verbal medium? Um, is it a temporal medium or is it a spatial medium? Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that makes film an amazing medium is it is it's all of those things. And that that statement by Weir made me think a lot of one of my favorite directors, uh, uh, Andrei Tarkovsky, uh, the great Russian director. I don't know if we're going to visit any of his films with our for our conversations. There, 
Uh, they, they may put too many people off. Uh, but, one, but one of the things I love about Tarkovsky is the way that he uses both music and images in a way that kind of very much echoes what we were what we were doing, and and that's that's not you know that way of thinking about film. To be frank, doesn't fit necessarily into the kind of the typical Hollywood way of thinking about films, which may be another answer to your question about why didn't this film you know do as well as people might have thought. Um, it does have a narrative, but it also goes off into other directions and kind of lingers over images and and, and moments in a very kind of introspective way. Um, I would say, to be honest, when I revisited the film, more of its flaws stood out for me than I had hoped. Um, I think the Totoro character is very underwritten. Um, I think the uh, therapy scene is a disaster. Um, the Brillstein character I've never liked, the Tom Hulst lawyer. So there, so I think the film has warts, a lot of warts. Um, I like a three out of four rank, rating from Ebert. I think that's right. But I also want to say that my philosophy of film viewing is... Um, uh, I don't, I, it's okay to me if it doesn't add up to a great film, because I don't think this is a great film, I think it's a good film, um, but I think it's good in ways that make it uh, um, a worthwhile investment of, of, of two hours. Right. And I think, you know, I also think about the context that you talked about using this, which is there's also as teachers, there's also sometimes films that teach really well. It's like, yeah. this is not perfect, but man, you can, you can, this raises the types of questions that we want to talk about and, uh, and it can give you some pieces to, to think about that. So I think that's definitely true. So before we get to your recommendation for next week, um, you talked about uh, Peter Weir a little bit. If you could recommend another Peter Weir film, if somebody was like, I'd like to see something else this guy made, what would you recommend? I would go with Witness. Okay. Yeah. And then I will say, same question for Jeff Bridges. You've talked about him as, as an actor you really like. If, if we wanted to see a great Jeff Bridges performance, what would be? Well, oh gosh, I, I've, got, I've got three different films in my head. Um, there are uh, no rules here, so you can uh, just name well, three. No, but- you know, the, the, the Big Lebowski uh, would, of course, come to mind. But the two other films, Sam, I confess, I can't remember the title of them. Um, the, one, the, the, the one that he did, did about the guys robbing the banks. Um, I don't even know, know that one. Oh, God. Is it older or? Yeah, well, it's within the last five years. Oh, okay. Um, so actually, if, 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 if I can delay a minute, I'm, let me take a look at his, at his filmography. Um, uh, it came out right about the time, maybe, uh, I don't know, uh, five, six years ago. It came out about the time of um, uh, all the various, uh, you know, uh, the, the whole kind of savings and loan. Um, oh, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, and uh, let's see, I'm, I'm, I'm on his Wikipedia page. I'm going to take a look at his, at his filmography. Um, let's see, it is, well, I can tell you before I get to that one, the other one I was going to say is, uh, is, is Crazy Heart. Okay. Um, I re- I really like uh, uh, Crazy Heart, uh, and then oh, Hell or High Water. Oh, I've heard that's great. Yeah, I oh, haven't yeah, seen yeah. that. Okay, so he got nominated for Best Supporting Actor for that, and then for Crazy Heart, he actually got an Academy Award. Um, and then and then since there's no rules, I'd I'd also have to throw in his performance in True Grit. But but I probably if I had to pick any of them, I probably would go with with Crazy Heart. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can't go wrong with a Jeff Bridges performance. And one of the things I love about Bridges is um, he isn't always um, a completely sympathetic character. He's often, and I think that's true in Fearless, right? He's a character that he's he's pretty hard to like. Um, but it's, it's, if this makes any sense, you don't like him, but you feel sympathetic towards him. 
Yeah, uh, and 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 he has a a kind of uh, well, he has a, a great screen presence and charisma where it's just like like I I he's definitely the guy I want to follow and learn more about. Like I I find yeah I I haven't seen a lot of things he's been in, but everything I've seen there's there's something about that guy and there's something about the way he plays these plays characters because i will say a movie like true grit i loved in that other than the fact that it's a cohen movie like there's almost nothing about that movie on paper that seems like i was gonna like it and i loved it and i thought he was great in it so my my history with bridges goes back to uh, i was blessed when i grew up outside in the haven we were blessed with a, a really great arts uh theater that i've mentioned in the past and I saw Bridges there in a 1975 film called Rancho Deluxe, um, which I'm not sure I'm recommending, but at the time, I, I just thought it was a lot of fun. And then, of course, one of his early, early, early good, great films is The Last Picture Show uh, from from 71. So, uh, moving on to next week, what uh, what do you have in store for us? Well, I think we need a little bit of a change of pace. Um, so uh, I'm looking at the list I've been keeping and it's all pretty dark. So <laughs> that tells you a lot about me. Uh, so I'm, I, this, this is gonna be the first in a series of, of kind of uh, two films and I'm not gonna tell you what the second one's gonna be. But the first one is a documentary uh, from 2016. It's called Life Animated. And um, you know, earlier you and I had a conversation about documentaries, and afterwards, you know, I thought, of course, of a whole bunch that I should have mentioned at the time. So this is one that I find really interesting from a couple of different angles. It's it's about um, a young man with autism, and it's about how it's a uh, it's about how uh, he was able to use uh, all these Disney films to literally give himself a voice in the world. Uh, and the film kind of follows him over over about a, a year period or so. And I and so first of all, it's simply inspiring. Uh, and secondly, I think it opens up some very interesting field of conversation about the effect that movies uh, can have on us, which is another the, another thing you and I have talked about. So, Life Animated, it's on um, uh, it's on Amazon Prime. Fantastic! I can I've not heard of this. Cannot wait. This is uh this is again. You, I love it when you recommend something I haven't seen. So, well, thank you very much uh, for for recommending this film for for talking me through it a little bit. I mean, this was a lot more of me just kind of lobbing the ball up to you to talk because I, I it actually was really helpful to um, to think through and process this movie a little bit. Um, and and I could see this being something that. Uh, that would work well in a classroom, especially mm -hmm. with the, the topic you were looking at. Exactly. That is all the that is all the time that we have uh, for this week. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, we will catch you next week when we talk about life animated in the video store. <laughs> <laughs>